We'll turn to read the Word of God in the New Testament, and we're going to read in the Paul's letter to Galatians and in chapter 3, and we're going to begin our reading at verse number 19. Galatians 3, and at verse number 19. Let us hear the Word of God. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all the sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have been Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of a Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months, and seasons and years. I am afraid I have laboured over you in vain. Amen. So on this God's word, we trust that you bless to us our reading from it. We're now going to turn to praise God from sing Psalms and Psalm number 25 on page number 30. And we're singing at verse number 12 down to the end of the psalm. Psalm 25 and sing Psalms on page 30 at verse number 12. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He'll teach them to them the chosen way, that they may prosper all their life. Their children in the land will stay. From verse 12 to the end of the psalm to God's praise. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He'll teach 
Galatians and to chapter 4, and I want to read at verse number 4. Galatians 4 and at verse number 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so on down to Verse number 7. This letter that Paul has written to the church in Galatia is one of the oldest letters that we have in the New Testament. And as such, it teaches us many things about the life of the New Testament church. And it highlights for us two particular, perhaps three particular challenges that we find in the church in Galatia and challenges that we are confronted with ourselves as the Church of Christ in every generation in the world. And the first of these is that we seem to think that we can be right with God by the things that we can do ourselves. And it's always helpful to be reminded that the Word of God makes it quite clear that you and I cannot be right with God on the basis of what we do ourselves. The second challenge is that as we read the letter, we see that those who become the children of God, that they think that they need Jesus plus their own works. They think that as well as coming to know the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of Christ, as we have at the beginning of chapter 3, that they also need to lean upon what they do themselves. And you and I know that the danger that there is in living your lives in the same way that we need Jesus plus what we do ourselves and we fall back into our default position of doing the things that we think will win God's favour forgetting that it is the Spirit of God that gives us freedom and that gives us the grace to serve God. And the third challenge is the way that we live our lives and we see that from chapter 5 especially onwards or chapter 4 onwards perhaps the way that we should live our lives as the children of God in the world, that we are to show the fruit of the Spirit of God and not the works of the flesh. And these challenges, they speak about our relationships with each other and our relationships with the world. Three important challenges that we face that we need to be reminded 
that the answer is in the gospel and that we live out as the children of God in accordance with the word of God. And when we do read, especially the end of chapter 3, we see the way in which Paul's writing connects us with the very theme that we have been looking at in the services for the last two Lord's Days. And that is the very purpose of God and having children of God. And the last chapter finishes with that whole sense of if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. And we have been looking at the way in which the promise is the strand, the thread that takes us through the whole of the Bible and what we begin with in Genesis chapter 3 begins to flower in different ways as we approach the New Testament and especially in the New Testament we see something of the glory of the riches of God's promise. And so tonight as we continue to think about the promise of God and how that unfolds in the life of the Lord Jesus and having looked in the morning from Isaiah chapter 9 about the birth of Jesus and the mission of God we now want to look at the verses here in chapter 4 of this letter and to think of the birth of Jesus and the people of God. Because all that God has purpose to do from the beginning is to have the world filled with his own image and the paradise of God covering the whole of the earth. And the mission of God is focused on having the people of God who will be exactly that and who will live as his children in this world and in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so we think of the birth of Jesus and the people of God. I want to think first of all of participation. The importance of whatever God is going to do, that he's going to do it from among ourselves. Because as we noticed in the morning, outside help, Somebody that looks into where we are and doesn't come into where we are is not going to help us. But here we have that whole sense of the presence of Christ, that whole sense of the purpose of God, and that whole sense of where he has come. And we see that when we think of participation, that is the whole picture of the plan of God and each step of that plan working out until ultimately the most wonderful thing of all happens in the full, when the fullness of time had come. We can think of, of, a, of a ship being fully manned and ready to set sail. That's the idea. So, so here we have a, a picture of when the promise is fully furnished and when it's fully ready to, to set sail into the world, here is the fullness of time. God has allocated and allotted every step of the way. He has his own purpose and his plan. Nothing's too early, nothing's too late in the fullness of time in accordance with God's plan. The wisdom of God, the marvel of the purpose of God and the marvel of the way in which despite the world waiting for 4,000 years for something to happen, God is not rushed to put his plan into place before he has purpose to do so, in the fullness of time. And in that fullness of time, we see that God takes the necessary action. God sent forth his Son. At a human level, 
We think of somebody with authority sending someone else go and do this so that my purposes and plans are fulfilled. Go here and change what is happening there so that it will fit in with, with the purpose and the strategy which I have put in place. And we can sense that there's feeling of, of, of authority in, in, in the words that we have here because God the Father is sending his Son on a mission, sending him out from himself, sending him away from his very own presence. And God is not sending his Son as if the Son is resisting going to where God wants him to go. God is, is the willing Son that he sends into the world as his own ambassador, as his own commissioner, with all of the authority of God himself to work on behalf of God and to do everything that God has purpose to do, which God in heaven, despite all of his power, cannot do, or that God has purpose to do, requires that he sends his Son into the world. He sends him forth. And when we think of that, that whole image of God sending, what we also recognize is that he didn't become the son of God when he arrived here. He was always his son, the pre-existent son of God, the eternal son of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God before ever the world was created God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unison and harmony. And from that unison and harmony, the delegation of, of this responsibility to the Son, God sent the Son. And so when we come to Jesus in the manger, it's God's plan. It's, uh, it's on time. We, we think of, of a natural pregnancy, and, and we, we think of the, the time scales involved in that. And the experts will tell us that the child will be born on such and such a date. We know that there are times they get it wrong. Sometimes the baby comes early, sometimes the baby comes late, sometimes there is a need for, for intervention. But, but in this case, we have the child, the Son of God, in the manger in Bethlehem, on time, no need for any other intervention. God has said this is when it happens. And so the virgin brings forth a son. He's born in the manger in Bethlehem. And the promise that God gave at the very beginning that the seed of the one would come here, he is in the manger in Bethlehem. Should we not always marvel at the fact of the coming of the Son of God to be the infant of the manger in Bethlehem. And that participation is, is qualified for us by Paul to, to help us to understand the fullness of the riches of the way in which he has come into our world, come into our environment. And, and the first of these I already referred to that he was born of a woman. And 
he has his genesis from a woman. It's interesting that Paul does not use the word that, he re- that is regularly used in the New Testament for birth. The word that he uses has its root meaning as the genesis. He, he came to have his genesis from a woman. And of course that's connected with what we saw in Luke chapter 1 where the Holy Spirit is, is coming upon Mary and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. The genesis is in itself from God, by the Spirit of God. He is born of a woman because of the intervention of God in that case so that he would be the child that Eve expected in Genesis 4. The seed that was expected down through the generations of the Old Testament. He is born of a woman. And how honourable a place she had and was given by God. And how how honoured we are that she was given that place so that we would be honoured with the presence of the Son of God. Born of a woman, born under the law. Not only does Paul want us to know his humanness, and the, the fact that he comes to, to share who we are. As the writer to the Hebrews says, because the children have flesh and blood, he took part of the same things. He's participating in our humanity. But as a stepping stone to be born under the law, he has his genesis in, from the woman, he also has his genesis under the law. And if I'm under anything, I'm under an obligation to live in accordance with it, in many ways dependent upon it, but I'm certainly under the control of whatever I'm under in this sense. And the remarkable, wonderful thing is that he is born under the law. The law that he has written himself the law that he has written himself for you and for me. The law that speaks and gives expression to his own holy character and the way in which his holy character requires conformity to his law that he has written. He comes as the author of the law to be under its conditions himself. And surely that itself is it's a stunning reminder of, of the marvel of what we see when, when Jesus comes to participate in, in our whole world. That he puts himself exactly where we are under the law which he has written, which really has no claims upon him because he has no place under it. He is not a servant before now. He is its writer. This law that gives expression to his old being. He comes to be under it. He comes not to abolish it, he says to the Pharisees, to his disciples on the same on the Mount. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He places himself in all of his perfection. 
in all of his divinity and all of his humanity. He placed himself under the law in order to fulfill the law. And as, as I said in the beginning, referred to in the beginning, the challenge that we face with regard to the law. We think we can keep it. And then we become the children of God and we can, we can come to the place where we think we don't need to keep it. But he has come under it in order to fulfill it. The participation. The remarkable condescension, the coming down of the Son of God to be under the shadow under the oversight of the power of his own law and all of its requirements upon him in our nature. We give thanks to God for the way in which the birth of Jesus reminds us of his participation in our humanness and in our environment where we are together with him and he now together with us required to keep the law of God. The participation. Secondly, we want to think of the purchase. He has come to redeem those who are under the law. He has come to those who are under the law. That's where he came himself. He has come to where we are. He has come to share in our, in our obligations. He has come to share in our experience of what it means to live in this world under his own most holy law. But the stunning fact about where he has come is when he's come to redeem us who are, who are under the law, there is this great difference between us and him. Because those who are under the law, we have now come in accordance with chapter 3 and verse number 10. We have come to be under the curse of the law. He has come into our environment. He has come to purchase our, our redemption. And he has come to us in all of our law-breaking, in all of our own curse-bearing, in the sense of being under the curse of God. The God who does say, cursed is everyone who does not abide in everything. And as, as James says in his own letter, if, if we keep the law of God and fail in one thing, we are guilty of it all. And, and the fact of the matter is that, that none of us can keep the law of God, that none of us are able to walk in accordance with its paths. We are under the law, and we are now under the curse of the law. And that whole picture we we have, for example, also in verse 23 of chapter 3. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The whole place in which we are found as those whom he has come to save, we are captive under the law, we are slaves of the law, 
we are due to the wages of sin, which are death, and there's nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves from our pride, locked away in accordance with the judgment and justice of God, the problem of our sin and the consequences of it, that we cannot be children, we cannot be the seed of Abraham, we cannot be the, the seed of the woman that, uh, that is going to enjoy the victory that, that, the seed of, that the seed singular will have when he comes to, to bruise the head of the serpent. We, we are there ourselves, captive under the law and captured by Satan himself in our darkness. He has come to those who are under the law. And, and that image highlights for us the distinction that must be there. Yes, he comes to share our environment, but he doesn't come to share in our sin. And he walked in our world under the under obligation to the law of God, the law which he had written himself and given to his people. He walked under its obligation but he went a very different path to the path that you and I took. We broke God's law. We broke God's covenant. But he went from his infancy to his departure out of this world, observing every detail of the law, fulfilling it, explaining its meaning, showing how it worked in his own life, and showing how it worked in his relationship with God the distinction that's so vitally important as he lives in our world in order to purchase, to rescue us, to deliver us. And in these conditions and in that environment, he has come to redeem us. He has come to engage in the great transaction of setting us free from our sin. That transaction that was familiar to the people in Galatia, where they would go along to the public square and where slaves were traded and where money was paid by a person into the temple of, of the pagan god to set the slave free and to make them the possession of this other god the payment being paid by a person into the temple to set this person free. A marketplace transaction. And now in, in, in the arena of, of the, where God relates to humankind, in the invisible picture that the Bible paints for us, there we, we see this great transaction. There are those who are slaves of sin, you and me. That's where the gospel finds us. And there is God looking at us, where we are, and this, this desire to, to rescue us, to purchase us for himself. And he has sent his son. Go to the marketplace and pay the required price. You know what the price means. You're of the same mind as I am. You're of the same nature as I am. 
You understand the law which you and I have written. Go to the marketplace and go and pay the price. And the child of the manger goes through his life with his disciples and in his own mind he knows exactly what that means. When he tells his disciples that he has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the the invisible arena of, of the arrangement between the Father and the Son to secure our redemption becomes the visible reality of of all that takes place on on the cross at Calvary where for which and towards which this child in the manger has been living his whole life my hour has not yet come every step knowing that's where I'm going that's the great transaction that's where I'm going to give myself that is where the law will be fulfilled so that Jesus, in the words of Paul in Romans, he is the end of the law. He is the goal, the terminus. I come to Calvary's cross and there is the purchase. There the price is paid. Nothing less, not silver and gold, says Peter, not the transaction that you understand in, in Galatia and all of your, your dealings with one another. No, it's much more than that. It takes much more than that. It takes something that's outside of human experience altogether. It takes the blood of my son. And Jesus gives his blood. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. He pays the price. God in sending forth his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh condemned sin in the flesh of his Son. The penalty when he suffered as the sin bearer, when he was crushed by the wrath of God. What is the ultimate cost? How much is it? It is all that the mystery of the cry from the cross contains. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? It means darkness. But what does it really mean? We just don't know. Perhaps one day we will know. But we just don't know. But we know that what it meant is what God required and we know that what it meant Jesus paid the price and we know that because of that there is redemption there is salvation there is release the wages of sin death price paid he has finished the work he has removed the obstacle And the sinless Son of God, bearing the sin of the world, bears away the penalty of sin, so that those who are sinners are no longer under its dominion, and under its power, and under its penalty. The purchase.
can purchase so many other things. But the greatest purchase, the greatest transaction of all time is connected with the Son of God whom God sent into the world so that the preciousness of the the manger becomes a, a, a stepping stone to the stunning events of the cross. And there is where we see why this was necessary, that God came in to where we are so that God would do that to his son in order to pay the price that was required for you and for me who had no resources, who had no coinage, who had nothing to give, who were bankrupt. He came to purchase the participation, the purchase, and finally, the present, in the sense of not the present as in the now, but the, the present as in the gift. Why did he do all this? That we might receive adoption as sons. There is something to receive, something to take possession of, something tonight for us to embrace, something tonight for us to open our hearts out to and, and to, to receive. And on the very other side of the whole idea of receive is the principle that we referred to in the morning that behind the receiving is first of all the giving. And to us, as a son is given, said Isaiah. And the DNA of everything that God does in his kingdom, it's all about giving. The free giving of God without anything required of us, but simply his own heart in all of its grace, in all of its love, overflowing out to us. It is the expression of all that God is in his love to give us the supreme gift. And we can read just the one passage, the one text that reminds us of that, that we read in the morning. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's that giving of God. And for you and me tonight, we are face to face with God as the giver, looking to the sinner as the receiver, because that's all that the birth of Jesus is about, the coming of the Son of God into the world, so that you tonight would have the great privilege and honor of receiving the greatest present of all and the greatest gift of all that comes to you from the very heart of a loving God who sent the Son because he loved. And the gift is twofold. Or should I say the gift is one, but it's explained in two ways to show its riches. That we might receive Adoption as sons. 
It's what we need to be. It's what God has said his kingdom is going to be all about. Children who are the children of God. And here is the whole purpose of of the work of, of God and his son. That we might receive adoption as sons. That there is that, that legal transaction where we are released from one family, where we are bound to the father of that family and the inheritance that belongs to that family and all of the privileges that are not privileges at all, but everything that belongs to that family, where I'm released from there by the God who is giving this gift taken away from everything that belongs to the family that speaks of death and sin and penalty and eternal lostness. Taken out of that family and given adoption as sons. Taken into God's family. Coming to be God's children. Having that new sense of father new sense of opportunity, new sense of privilege, new sense of inheritance. The riches of of the sonship, they just keep piling up and up. We can cover the uh, floors with with a variety of presents and gifts, but we we cannot reach the the limit of of how we want to express the, the fullness of this gift that you and I can be the sons of God because we are purchased by what the Son of God has done on our behalf. And when we read the Bible and it explains to us the the consequences of being in the family that is not the family of God and the great privileges of being in God's family through receiving the spirit of adoption, why tonight would you not? Why tonight would you shut your heart to the very thing that God wants you to receive? It simply doesn't make sense to say no. It doesn't make sense to turn this opportunity down because it's God's way and it's God's only way. And we should be thankful tonight that he doesn't want you and I to go on keep his law perfectly for, for 10 days or 10 months or 10 years before we get the status. He's saying, not only that that's not necessary, he's saying that that's never going to work. This is the only thing that works, that you receive the gift of adoption of sons from me. The present, the gift, let's receive it with joy. And the other side of of viewing that gift is the way in which he he speaks of because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Not a different thing, but a different way of talking about the same thing. And when we receive this present from God, this, this adoption of sons, In that moment, we are receiving the Spirit of God. And and in this case, 
what is happening is not dependent upon you or me. That's the wonder of it. What is happening is that God has sent the Spirit of His Son. He sent His Son into the world to purchase our redemption. And now He's sending His Spirit into the world, the Spirit of His Son into the world, so that we might be the children of God, so that we will sense that we will have the Spirit of adoption in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The cry that Jesus had in the garden, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. An exclamation, a a crying out for, for help in many ways. It's that spirit that enables us to to cry out to God, crying in our hearts. And so we see the spirit of the Son that comes as a result of of Jesus dying on the cross and being given the, the gift of the Spirit by the Father so that he will send the Spirit out to us. He was the sent one who becomes the sender. And tonight we are here and looking to him to do the sending so that we can do the receiving. And on one side of it, there is the the status of being sons. We might receive adoption as sons. And the other side of it is that we have the spirit of a son in our hearts, that we have the experience of being children. And we cannot be children without that. We, We have our children, and they know that they are our children because of the experience of, of the love of ourselves as their parents. And God wants us tonight to, to receive the gift that he freely offers so that we will have the status of being his children and so that we'll also experience his love. And when all of that takes place, what do we see? We see God furthering his main purpose in the Bible to reverse the consequences of sin, to fill the world with his own children in the image of God and to continue to move and to prepare towards that place where the paradise that was lost becomes the paradise that is regained in all of its beauty and peace when we shall all be who receive the spirit of adoption where we shall all be the children of God together with him as the oldest son in the family and there appreciating in all the fullness what the purchase meant, what participation meant and what sonship truly means. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to to the promise. May God help us to grow in our understanding more and more of what the coming of Jesus means for life every day and for our hope and for our future. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious God, we rejoice in you. You are the God who continues to fill us with a sense of wonder and of marvel the things that you have done for us. And so we pray that you will 
Bless your word to us tonight and fill us with more of that wonder and with more of that praise and give us hearts that are always willing, ready to uh, receive, to embrace and to cherish in our hearts day by day the riches of your spirit and the riches of being called the children of God. So hear our prayer and accept us, for we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Closing Psalm is Psalm number 16. Again, it's sing Psalms and we're singing at verse number 5. Psalm 16 at verse number 5. And we're on page number 17. And we're going to sing from verse 5 to verse 8. O Lord, you are to me my cup and portion sure. The share that is assigned to me, you guard and keep secure. From verse 5 to verse 8 to God's praise.